0: Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the Pro Photography Podcast number 204. It is July 14th, 2023. Welcome to the New Web Pro Photography Podcast, where we talk about what's new, what's old, and what works for professional and enthusiast photographers. Find show notes, videos, and more at simefx.com podcast. And we're back here with another episode of Pro Photo Podcast. I know it's been a little more than two weeks. Last week, actually, my wife had a baby, so I was I was kind of occupied. And it was also the 4th of July for those of you that live up in the United States and all that kind of stuff going on. So I took a break and just let it cruise last week. But we're back. I've not forgotten you. In fact, I think we have some really interesting topics that I've been kind of building up today. We're going to talk about the news, of course. We're going to have a few picks, a few tips. But our main topic for the day is is going to be editing related. Do, do you edit heavy? Do you edit light? Do you use AI? Do you go naked and keep it like really natural? What are you doing as a photographer? And what are some ways, some tips? In the tips today, we're going to talk about how to not over edit because this is a huge problem. Even if you're not trying to do like really artistic or AI or any of that stuff, right? You just want a nice image. We're going to talk about how to not over edit. But before we do that, let's kind of do a little review of what's going on in the photo news as we come in. As the Pro Photography Podcast kind of keeps growing, we're moving forward here. It's me, your host, Gavin Syme. As we grow, I will tell you that we're going to start doing roundtable panels again, things like that. I'm starting to get people lined up and get that organized. I'm going to wait until the podcast gets to like a thousand or more uniques per episode because this is essentially a brand new pro photography podcast. Even though the archives from 2007, 2008, 2009 range are, are in there, um it's not quite the same right because we're basically having to restart from scratch so i hope you guys the listeners will help share them in your group spread the word leave comments reviews things like that and send emails to profotoshow at gmail.com let us know what you want to see on the show how i can improve things how i can organize things better what you need on a great professional photography podcast and as we grow, I'm also going to start mixing in panels and guests and things like that. I, I want to kind of do some of the the footwork myself before I start bringing in panels, because if I'm taking all their time, you know, putting a lot more effort into planning a show, I want to make sure that, that they're getting the listens, that, that you guys are out there, that you're hearing them. And I know that when you first start a podcast, it's uh, it can be a little slow. But in the future, we're going to be mixing up these solo shows with master photography tips and news, and then also combining in panel and guest shows so we can really get kind of a mix of everything. All right, let's jump in to the news. Now, I feel like we're in a little bit of a slump this month for like technology advancement, really big news. But of course, everyone's still talking about AI. They're going to be for a while. There are a couple things that I think are worth looking at. One is there's some talk. This was an article over on Petapixel. As always, at ProPhotoShow.com, you can find the show notes and links to this stuff about this Glamour magazine, Bulgarian Glamour magazine cover shot of model Lisa Opie. And they actually did like a photo shoot, and then they did this AI-generated photo from that. I'm looking at this and thinking, okay, people love to talk about the controversy of AI because controversy generates clicks. Unfortunately, when you're just a lowly photography podcast and you're just chatting about taking better photos, it's not going to go viral because it's it's not really controversial. But I think it's important that we are aware of what's going on. And there was some controversy about this, this essentially using images, right? But not images just taken without permission, right? Taking these photo shoot images and then generating these very high quality AIs. And to be fair, we have like the Photoshop AI and we have all these AI tools. I know it's going to get better, but most of the time, I think in a lot of ways, it's more work to get a good portrait out of AI. I don't mean doing fun stuff and like changing something quickly, but a really quality portrait out of AI might it sometimes be harder than just setting up a model. And if you know how to take photos and just taking the portrait, when I'm looking at this, I'm thinking, okay, you have you know, basically kind of this 360 degree views of the model with just one outfit, not having to do all the posing and then doing all these other AI images mean, that are essentially just illustrations. And some people are saying, oh, you know, this is disgusting. The fashion photographers are going to hate this, this kind of stuff, right? Because again, social media is all about controversy. You have to upset people. You have to be edgy. This is is what we do. We get this endorphin rush when we argue and when we comment and I, I know that that's the world we live in right I'm on social media too I have lots of opinions on things and I have for a lot of years but when I look at this what I thought when I saw this it's kind of this Barbie themed uh, futuristic weird retro futuristic combination kind of look right and I thought this kind of looks like 1950s fashion editorial illustration and retouching. And I think sometimes with all this AI stuff, we forget that if you can go back 50, 60 years, and it was super common to do photo shoots. We think that that retouching came out with Photoshop, but it didn't at all. And this is something I really learned when I was studying with like Kim Whitmire and people like that who went back all of this way, right? And they did airbrush retouching still. They talked about using dyes to retouch negatives. And All of this stuff. So everything we do in Photoshop now and in in programs like it, um, I want to say like Lightroom and Capture One, but really you don't do advanced retouching. As good as the raw editing and the workflow processing, the layer masks and the speed masking that I talk about on the website and the blog and my video on my YouTube channel all the time. And I just have done some videos recently on the latest features of how you can use curves now and Lightroom masks and things like that. So you can do these really powerful things, but I've also been doing some content recently on when you should go to photoshop like this idea because lightroom has come a long ways it's really jumped ahead of capture one uh in 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 my reviews my annual review lightroom beat capture one in, in pretty much every area um but capture one you still have here it's really powerful you have these other apps you have luminar and then you have the big dog photoshop but where the real hardcore editing goes on is photoshop right these raw processors are for for the main edit, right? They're for the batch. And when you go into something like Photoshop, you can do painterly edits. In fact, I'm going to do... My video today is going to be talking about our main topic. And I'm going to have a video today that goes along with this podcast. One doesn't rely on the other. But actually, my video for the YouTube channel that I'm uploading for this week is actually going to write to today's topic on the podcast. For the first time ever, I think, we're going to have that synchronization. What I'm getting at is you can decide how far you want to edit, but this hyper-edited image goes all the way back way before digital. So is it really any different if you compare taking image references using Photoshop? Okay, well, what's fake? It's fake. It's Photoshop. All right. So we've raised the bar now. Everybody thinks things are fake. They question more. It's okay to question. That's not bad. Uh, oh, no, now it's AI. It's even more fake. But if you're trying to do an illustration, a commercial, a fashion illustration, there's no question that AI is going to take over in this. And it's going to be a skill set of its own. But yes, it's it's going to cost jobs. There's, there's probably no doubt about that. I guess there's doubt, but not very much doubt about that. Because that's life. Look, when digital came out, so many photographer friends lost their job. When the car became mainstream, the the horse and buggy industry lost its lost its jobs. I mean, I, it's it's tough and it kind of sucks. But there's talk in this article about you know should there be legislation, et cetera, et cetera. You can't regulate. And I know I'm a pretty libertarian minded guy. And and this this hits close to home because this is going to affect photography. But you can't regulate art into being valuable. It has to have value because we're making moments, and we've talked about this recently. This comes up almost every show now, and I'm sure as we start doing roundtables and stuff, it'll continue to come up. Go check these out. To be honest, they just remind me of 1960-style retouch. When I look at them, I don't really see a photo. I see an illustration, and that's what they remind me of, these these hyper-painted illustrations that you might have seen in 1950s and 60s, fashion publications and ads that were really clearly heavily airbrushed, even though they may have been based on an original photo. Uh, Let's move on, speaking of moments. And there was this article on Petapixel that I was like, oh, this is cheesy, right? Maybe I'm getting old and cynical. Um, But it was was talking about, the title is, Couples Canoe Capsizes During Proposal, Making for Romantic Photos. And I'm like, wow, how cliche. But I got thinking about this in contrast to... AI And this photographer, Jessica Knight, was doing kind of this notebook-themed photo shoot for like a proposal, right? So it couldn't get any more like cliche and cheesy romantic. All right, fine, right? This is what couples want at this time. And when a couple's getting married, they want something romantic and a little cheesy. That's fine. But it did get me thinking this canoe... Fell over uh, during this session, so they fell in the water, and she's like in a wedding dress, and I, I don't know. It almost seems too like the wedding dress, and he's all dressed up, and and should I? Maybe I should see. how see, how I'm suspicious of everything. It's fake. It's fake. That's what we do now. Everything's fake because we're so suspicious that everything is staged in this TikTok. No attention span. Everything is staged. Generation where it's AI. And and this is my point here, right, that we do need organic moments because a cheesy notebook-themed photo shoot, 20 years from now, they're going to be like, oh, those are cute. But like an actual memory, if it was real that the canoe actually tipped over, right, and they got all wet and dirty and it was wild and they got all these cool photos, that's a moment. That's something Real And so when you're scrolling through these photos, you see a nice photo shoot, like a, a, a wedding, an engagement shoot. But if you get something like that, then the moment changes, then it becomes something spontaneous. And I think even though it's a completely different topic than AI, I keep connecting this in my mind because I'm seeing these patterns of like more and more obviously the artificial stuff is going to be used but more and more i've said this in recent shows where people are going to start valuing real moments and so we need to think about capturing real moments this is why i love doing street photography because it's all about real moments and it challenges me to not be too hyper technical i'm not going to set everything up on a tripod for a street photo right and i've been talking about this if you've if you've not been to my shadow hackers workshop we talk about the context of that a lot and how that spontaneousness can help us discover shadows better. If you haven't seen my Shadow Hackers workshop, definitely go to symefx.com forward slash shadowhackers. This is my free online webinar that I do every week or two. Well, at least for now, I can't promise that it'll keep being available on there. But it, this is a workshop that I've been doing to teach shadow hacking. And it's really important stuff. It's, it's stuff that took me 20 years to figure out. And it, it will change the game in terms of, of how you take your photos. But it kind of brings me back to looking for the moments, the shadows, the way that they, things lead our eye, and also the way that moments happen and the spontaneity of creating real moments. And that's why this, I wasn't even going to mention this article. It was just like, okay, it's a, it's a cute engagement shoot. But I got thinking about this in contrast to the AI, which is completely staged. And we kind of do live in a, in a staged world. Uh, In the next bit of news, uh, this new threads, right? Instagram's threads or Facebook's threads or whatever you want to call it. It's their their Twitter clone that they're probably going to get sued for because it's so similar. And obviously, Facebook is trying to take clout from Twitter. And whether you love Twitter or Elon Musk, like just saying Elon Musk is a way to get clicks on YouTube now, right? Because he's a controversial figure. It's not, let's be honest. I mean, it's not like Facebook and Instagram are the good guys in any of this. So... At first, I was like, this is stupid. I don't need another stupid Twitter clone. I barely use Twitter. And then I thought I, I did my proverbial, okay, it's a quote, new social network. I should jump on there and see if there's there's any activity. And so I actually went on and I uploaded like one of my videos, because you can do videos, text, you can do photos. It's it's, it's a Twitter. <laughs> it's a Twitter clone. Okay. And I opened this up and I, I said, okay, I'm gonna make a post. And it's basically. Has more or less your same audience from Instagram, right? It's it, you. You actually have to sign in with an Instagram account, so it's kind of weird. Like, not it's a new thing. It's a, it's Threads. It's it's a Twitter knockoff from Facebook, but it's not Facebook and it's not its own thing entirely because it's dependent on Instagram. In fact, when I when I opened it up and signed in, had me follow, give me the option, but it had me follow all the same people that i follow on instagram and what i what i do when these come out is i want to test because instagram has been ruined by the algorithm i can't go on instagram without seeing these stupid and and forgive me if you love these kind of tiktok short videos i know some of them are funny and entertaining but i feel like they dumb us down so much like everything now people can't watch even a five minute video anymore that they learn something Maybe, maybe that's why uh I, I I'm loving going back to podcasting. It's, it's more long form. You don't have to stare at a screen. You can just hear conversations. And you guys can get involved in that conversations by going you know, to the Facebook page and go leave a comment in the show notes at profotoshow.com. And you can engage with that. And so there's a social aspect to it, but there's a simplicity to it. And when I look at all these short videos, Instagram and Facebook, we used to get likes rapidly and engagement. I remember back on the SimeFX page on Facebook when I had 10,000 fans, right? And I would post about new presets that I'd make or a new photo edit that I was doing, or I made a video. And my content was much more primitive back then. Obviously, this was 10, 15 years ago, so everything was different back then, right? On, on the standard, my content was fine. But I could post a photo from a recent session and have hundreds of views in an hour excuse me, hundreds of likes, right? Does that mean anything? Maybe not. There was there was a sense of like, oh, people are engaging. You guys are engaging with my content. You guys remember those days if you were on Facebook in like 2008, 2009 range? And it was a great way to get out there. Now I have like 60,000 fans on my Facebook page or likes, whatever you want to call it. And I can post a gorgeous photo from a session or a behind the scenes and maybe get 20, maybe get 20 likes. Because unless it hits the algorithm in such a way that goes viral, and Instagram can, and Facebook can use me like for a story They can use me to engage people's attention and keep them on the platform longer. That's what it's all about. That's what Instagram's all about. So the algorithms, the people we followed, because we wanted to follow that person, we're not being allowed to see their content most of the time. And this is true on YouTube. It's true on Facebook. It's true on Instagram. What we're being shown is what the algorithm wants us to see. So when a new social platform comes out like this, that's getting huge amounts of downloads, a lot of us, I think, go on there and say, is anything new? Have they unruined it at all? So I made a post. It got basically zero engagement from the people who follow me and I'm like, nope, it's the same trash Instagram algorithm that instead of showing me what I subscribe to it's showing me what it wants. I know this is good for them, right? The algorithm knows what our eyes engaged. Whether it's you know you're watching TikTok and it's it's butt shaking around or whatever that they they know that most of the world's going to engage. It's truly scary if you if you open an Instagram account. I mean, open a particularly TikTok account, any of them, but TikTok in particular. You can open up TikTok. Never used it before, and whether you want to or not, it's going to know what to show you and what you will keep you looking at that screen. Within like an hour, it's scary how quickly and it's scary to me that, you know, I have kids that are coming to teenage years now. It's scary to me like how manipulative these technologies can be because it can engage you with what it knows that your brain connects with and then then keep you watching that and lead you down rabbit trails where, where the algorithm wants you to go. And now you enter AI into all this. I'm not trying to be like all conspiracy theory and crazy. I just think these algorithms are kind of terrible for society so threads had this huge influx right and it's already starting to drop off because i think we all went in there i went in like a mid one post so far you guys let me know if you think there's any relevance or if there's an angle you're using on it but as soon as i realized oh nothing's happening here this is just instagram but trying to be twitter like because facebook literally can't decide what it wants to be and it's all over the place and everybody's copying everybody and of course now what this article talking about is the engagement we're only a week in, right? And it's already it's already fallen off uh the engagement on it because it's it's nothing new. There's nothing distinct. There's nothing that connects with us, I don't think. You remember on the last episode though, we talked about this ai content creator that entered in a photography competition as like a proof of concept and it won the photography competition and then he said no i'm i'm declining the prize because this isn't it's, it's not a photo right because ai and ai generated image is not a photograph and it's important that we do understand the distinction doesn't mean it's not art or that it's not cool or it's not useful so this woman susie doherty took a photo just with her iphone of kind of this fashion scene of, of him in kind of this vintage-looking clothing in a bathroom holding hands with these mannequins. And it's hard to describe. I'll, I'll put a link again. This was another Pitta Pixel article. And she entered this in a in a contest, and it's getting attention from the reverse side of the last week's story because it was disqualified because they suspected it of being AI, which is a whole nother can of worms. And you remember I talked about like AI suspending our belief in things, right? It's, it's making the suspension of disbelief higher to where we have to work harder to convince people that things are real. And now you can have an actual photo even just taken on a cell phone and it's like, oh no, this is AI. Now you could say, well, there's AI algorithms working in the cell phone. Yes, but this was a real scene, a real photo. When I say AI, in general, in context of these articles, I'm not really talking about AI masking and Lightroom and things like that because those are tools to help us edit our photos. You can love those or hate those, And we'll talk about that more in the the main topic for today, actually. But AI generation of content is completely different. It's not a photo. And so this generated controversy in the whole other side because it was a real photo and it kind of goes back. like It's kind of coming true what I've been talking about for the past few episodes. As photographers, it might actually be important. It shouldn't be this way, right? We should be innocent until proven guilty, so to speak. We're out taking beautiful landscapes. We're taking scenes. Taking of a video of the scene of us act- of actually there working right A behind-the-scenes shot that might become more important than ever. Because if it's something really important, right, high-level prizes or something that's really important for uh, journalism or something like that, we might need to start having some kind of backup proof. Oh, here we here I was. Look at this photo. Oh, it's fake. No, look here I am in the selfie photo. Now I know that you can fake video too, but that's a little more complex. No, here I am actually on set taking the photo on my Instagram, right? On my on my wall. Do we actually need to start taking behind the scenes video? And I do this anyhow with sessions because it's incredibly useful. I'm always doing behind the scenes of all kinds of stuff. And that's why I love that the video has gotten so good on phones like the iPhone, the newest iPhones, like the latest ultra phones from Samsung. And I'm an Android user now. But my point is to suspend the disbelief, do we actually have to take a behind the scenes image just to show, show that we didn't? That we didn't fake it. And I think that is becoming an interesting question. Those are the things that stood out to me in the news. I hope you guys will go over to profotoshow.com. Go to the show notes and leave a comment or click the link over from the show notes to the Facebook post uh, in the Facebook Shadow Hunters group for each episode. You can check out the actual Facebook post and discuss it there if you want to do it in that form. Let's talk about what you guys think about this. I'd like to see a little more engagement and discussion on this topic and we'll see what happens. All right, let's come into our main topic for the day. Talk about how you're editing and how I'm editing and where we are, right? We have all this software and technology in 2023, but I think the question that is left out the most is, are we editing enough? Are we editing too much? Is it the right theme? I've talked about this in my workshops for a lot of years even my workshops down to like my Shadow Hackers webinars that are going on now, I'm always talking about getting it right in camera, right? Getting your shadow correct, leading your lines, uh, using your light, all this kind of stuff that makes a good image in camera. But a raw image from a camera is still a raw image. I did a session last weekend, and I'll put a couple of images from this in today's show notes over profotoshow.com. In particular, the image I'm talking about And I'll actually uh, show some of these in the video I'm working on today, too, because I'm actually doing a companion video, like I said, on the YouTube channel. I'll link that in the show notes to visually talk about this and give some actual tips in Lightroom for managing that kind of extra layer of how intense your edit is. There's, There's a thing in editing where whether you're in Lightroom or you're in Photoshop, but the more tools you have, Photoshop in particular... I always say, hey, if you take a great image in the camera, right, you edit it in Lightroom or in Capture One, and then you go to a layer-based editor like Photoshop, and you know how to use that. And Photoshop can be really complicated, but it doesn't have to be. The fundamentals of what we do as photographers in Photoshop and the the advantages we get from using layers can be summed up pretty simply. In fact, I have a a workshop on that called Photoshop Fast, where it's like a four-hour course of like crash course of Photoshop, but it's a crash course related to what you'll actually use coming out of Lightroom. And what I'm, my point in this is that if you edit in your raw editor, you go to Photoshop and you say, no, I can make it better because you pretty much always can. Why? Because you're building up layers and each time you add a layer, you do a little more, right? You burn and dodge a little more and you retouch a little more. You use curves a little more. You paint in a little more. In fact, on this session, I took one of my favorite images and I edited it really good in Lightroom. Okay, and I said, no, this is good. And then, of course, we can copy and paste that to the similar images. And it's an image of my model in kind of black lingerie, but then she has this kind of sweeping cover-up cloth that she's flinging up in the air as she's looking out toward the sunset. And so there's kind of this classy motion of the fabric, and I was looking at this, and I looked at the edit in Lightroom, and I said, okay, this is good. I can do more with this. Because I, I still felt like the I, I, I kept trying to do more in Lightroom, but it got that over-edit feel. And if you've ever edited, if, if you know your photos, if you're intimate with your photos, you're looking at your session, I always go back to a grid view when I'm editing the raw, right? I'll filter. That's my general process. I'll filter the images. Five stars are my best images. Then I'll go and I'll edit each kind of micro-grouping. Like, okay, here's this pose or this, this spot. And I'll edit that. I'll work with presets, like a filmist preset or something like that. Hey, I'm going to put Portra 400. Now I'm going to go to uh, masks. And I'll usually go to like my elegant speed masks. But you, would of course, do it manually. And I'll do masks for the skin. I'll tone down the background. I'll balance this out. It's actually really important with these tools now, I think, because we have that extra layer level in Lightroom and that we have masks and we can build up. And we have a similar thing in Capture One where you can do layers. You don't have the AI masking and stuff to make it quite as easy, but you can build up. It's important, I think, for perspective to control the opacity. And that's something I'm going to show in the video today that I've been mentioning in some of the recent videos on my channel, how even if even if you're not using tools like I make on my site over at SignFX, even if you are making your own masks You don't want to be building those from scratch. You want to build those six combo masks into a preset or have a preset that has those. That's what I do with elegance presets. But you can also build your own because Lightroom is rewarding us now for applying things as presets. If I apply a develop preset, I have the opacity slider, right? So I can quickly see what more looks like and what less looks like. It's actually a huge feature that I don't think a lot of people fully value yet. It's even it's kind of even a bigger deal with with masks because if you apply a mask in Lightroom, you have an opacity slider, okay, and that's good. But what happens is that you have this slider on each mask. If you apply a speed mask, like I show in videos, oftentimes where you you've saved or you've applied a combination of masks. That are already kind of pre-refined. You can, of course, edit them. But when you apply them all together, you can then control the opacity, the intensity of that effect, all 12 masks together. So you're getting more with a preset if you apply it in that that way. Now, please forgive me if I'm being a little long-winded because I'm going somewhere with this. Even though on the podcast, you don't have the visual right in front of you, you're going to see where I'm going with this. So in Lightroom, I can go... And I can get a perspective by turning the opacity of, let's say, a, a combo of masks that soften the skin and tone down the background. I can turn that way up and be like, ooh, that's way too much. I can turn it all the way off and say, okay, there's neutral. I can do the same with a preset. I can reset the image. This is why I love the raw edit because it's quickly to see what I started with. A raw image is not meant to be used as is. It's not like, oh, no, I'm I'm an organic photographer. I do natural images. I only go straight from the raw The raw photo is not meant to be used that way. It's like a raw negative. It's meant to have some correction. Now, you can do very light correction. I might take an image and just apply an Ektar 100 from Filmist and then maybe a few manual tweaks and that's it. I might even turn it down a little bit because we can do that now in the latest versions of Lightroom and just kind of keep that natural film look, nothing more. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with applying some masks, AI or otherwise, and doing building up. But if you've ever edited like this, you know you kind of get to this point where you're like, oh, it looks good. It looks good. It looks good. And then at some point you come back, maybe the next day. Maybe someone looks at it. Maybe you share it and it just doesn't get any any response. And you're like, I thought I had this really good. I edited it a lot. And that's not always a good thing. Because sometimes have you ever come back to an image the day after. A week after him, or a year after, I'm like, ew, what was I thinking, right? And so I think for perspective, my question, my my tip today is you need to think about when you're doing a session, an image, your best image of the day, you're going to edit that more properly. I always say, okay, I'm going to take my best 1% of images that that are actually going to go to print, for example. Those are going into Photoshop because I'm always going to get a better, more refined edit As you start building up layers, let's say in Lightroom and do this, you start to get more pasty, more weird noise. I mean, sure, you can reduce that. But the more you edit, the more fake things start to feel because you're drifting away from what the scene was. So, for example, if I select a background in a mask and I darken the background, you want to key your background from your subject, right? Your your background generally, and I'm speaking portrait in particular, but these concepts do apply to everything. I'm speaking of portrait because that's the session that I'm referencing that I did last weekend. Your background should pretty much always be a stop or two different from your subject because you want to create that three-dimensional feel in a photo, okay? Now, the best way to do this is, of course, in camera, right? You have more light on your subject than on your background. Your background falls out a little bit. This is called keen for the background, and it's something I talk about a lot in my exposure workshops and and even even shadow hackers. You can do it in camera, but you're still going to find a lot of times in post, I still want to select the background. I love that Lightroom now makes it so easy to select the background because even if I don't need to do anything but the subject in terms of like softening skin, let's say, I can still reduce contrast to the background. even if I'm not darkening the exposure per se, I'm actually getting a huge amount of power by keying down that background and making it flatter. And this is now easier than ever with the way that you can use curves in um, Lightroom layers. Okay, let me make a note of this. And you can, by the way, you can use curves in layers in Capture One as well, if you're a Capture One user. In a lot of apps, it's just a bit harder to select precisely that background and Lightroom's AI selection makes that really easy. And hopefully we'll see more of that coming out in other apps like Capture One, because we should be able to focus on the creative aspect, not spending an hour making a selection. So it's making these kind of details. But then again, anytime we have something new like this, so easy to overdo it. Remember the early HDRs when we first started doing HDR in 2009 era? And they were just so overbaked and overdone and everything was pushed into the midtones. There was no use of shadows. Um, And I was... Always, I was adamant in those days. I, I figured out, I kind of started to see what was happening, and a lot of you guys did as well. And so I did was doing these HDR workshops, and I was really preaching: use the shadow, don't push everything into the midtones. That's not what you want. That's not what HDR means. But what I'm getting at here is if if you just go in and you select a layer in Lightroom and drop it down two stops, it's going to have this harsh, like this cutoff. It's not going to feel right. So you got to balance that out, which is something I show a lot in videos, and I'll link to my using the new features in Lightroom curves and layers. As well in the show notes, if you haven't seen that video on my channel, along with today's video, that's kind of on this topic of not over editing, okay, then you're in Photoshop, and you're building up. So I took this photo in question. I said, Okay, I, 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 I can't push this more in Lightroom. It's just looking artificial. It's looking weird. Go into Photoshop. And as always, I'll start with something, you know, tools that I've already have made that I have installed, like Loomist actions, like my Alchemist. And so I went, I think, to an alchemist action. I did a little bit of, like, you know, balancing, skin smoothing, a little bit of of soft glow, just to make the scene feel beautiful. Okay? Then I went into pixel painting. Now, pixel painting is where you're actually painting over. You add a layer, and you're painting over. You can either manually, like, you know, you can alt or option and do a color sample. Like, I might color sample the skin of the face, and then you're gently painting with maybe a 10% opacity over the face to, to kind of bring shadows where you want them to bring the skin tones. You can do the same in the background. So at this point, we're all manual. Then you can actually go further than that and use like a mixer brush, which is actually a paintbrush like look, but it's using the colors behind it instead of having to sample the color every moment. You go to a mixer brush and you can do this in Photoshop and a lot of other apps, right? And so the goal is not maybe to make the whole image a painting, right? I'm not trying to say, oh, I painted this from scratch. It's a retouch that kind of goes back to that illustrative level retouch that we talked about in the the news where I was talking about the AI, except for AI' is not being used for this. I'm just manually brushing in. So at the end, at this point, I'm deciding to do a more extreme and a more illustrative edit. It's still a photo, and most of what's there is still photo, but I've, I've retouched and airbrushed over and mixer brushed and all that kind of stuff. I'll show you I'll show you in the show notes the final image. Because there's too many images from this session to show you all of them. I'll show you this image, the Lightroom version, and then the Photoshop version. Now, I didn't have to go this far in Photoshop, but when I started working with it, and I love taking fabrics from a session and then kind of doing these swirly paints and stuff to just make it look like they're kind of swishing. Not to make it abstract or anything like that, just to make it look kind of illustrative, like, like maybe you would for a magazine cover or something like that. And I definitely don't do this to every image. I might take a favorite image from a session and say, no, this is this is good. I'm going to do this to this one image. But the beauty is, and one of the biggest tips I can give you, whether you're in Lightroom or Photoshop, and this is really easy in Photoshop, is to control the opacity. I might edit and edit and edit, and you're building up. Then for perspective, what I'll do is I'll take all those layers and I'll group them together with like Control-G. So you select all your layers, you Control-G or Command-G, and you make a group. Now you can turn them all on or off, or you can do opacity up and down to any degree you want. So you can see how far you've gone. Just like when you apply layer masks with a preset. When you apply masking in Lightroom with a preset, you can combine all these masks, right? Here's my, my Glamour Beauty Portrait Mask from Elegance. There's 12 masks here. I apply them. I can turn it up and down with one slider without having to individually go in and turn them on and off. And it helps. I think it really helps us give creative perspective, To ask ourselves, okay, I've done all this editing. Then you might say at the end, it seems a little too much, right? I might look at this and say, I want it to feel more. I want more of the photograph coming through and less of my painterly retouch and my illustrative look. In this case, I didn't really. I I loved the illustrative look that came out of this. But we all have different approaches. There's different projects that we might be doing on a given day. The beauty is that if I do it this way, I've built up this edit. I could turn that down to fifty percent, and it would just become a very subtle. So it would, it would be retouched, but it would still be very photographic. And so you see what I'm saying here, how you can decide, do you want a natural edit? And I don't mean a pure raw file because that's not a natural edit. It, it looks nothing like what you saw. It's the camera's interpretation and trying to pack as much information into that file, as much bit depth into that file as possible. It's very flat. Raw files shouldn't be used in general as your final edit. You always need to edit a raw file. If you're shooting JPEG or something like that, like the Fuji Fuji JPEG, Profiles, yeah, you've edited. Essentially, you've just applied a preset in camera. I don't do that. I shouldn't say that. I do shoot in camera JPEGs on my X100, but I shoot them beside RAW and I don't actually save the JPEGs. I'm only shooting the JPEGs for if I get something I want and I quickly want to print it on an Instax printer or post it to Instagram or something because I'm excited about it. But what I actually copy to the computer is my RAW files because I'm always going to come back to my own Filmist presets. And use those because I can have more control. I can get more dynamic range. It's just in every way better. The the built-in JPEGs, they do look good, but the clarity is like way, 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 way down. Uh, You lose so much information. So there's not a lot of editing headroom. Not that they're bad. I know a lot of people love them and a lot of people shoot JPEG. But actually those JPEGs on my Fuji cameras, if I shoot them at all, they get thrown away. They don't get copied to the computer. I might save one or two on my phone if I like them. But my real edits are done. In, in Lightroom or in capture one and I'll, I'll come in I'll do a black and white edit I'll do a film edit something like that then that is my basic edit so like a natural edit a mid-level edit would be using lightroom masks for example going to layers in the raw editor where you're you're softening skin maybe you're accenting the eyes a little bit in Lightroom now the, the AI masking will separate eyes and face and skin tone and hair so i can individually do that i don't usually do that manually because i've built it all into to a preset but that is kind of like i would say like a level two edit now we're we're stepping away a little bit from just the true out of camera just color corrected tone corrected right and i would say the level three edit is where you do uh, more intensive photoshop uh, burning and dodging you are doing toning, separating the background more, maybe painting out blemishes and stuff that that you wouldn't really do that effectively in, in Lightroom, maybe a little bit of cloning of objects. And I would say the ultimate final level is like the level four edit where you're becoming an illustrator. You're You're painting in or out things and details it's it's not so different than burning and dodging doing pixel painting but you're doing more you're mixing colors you might be adding some blur to certain areas to draw areas and that's the example i'm talking about with this image where you guys can go see what i'm talking about and i think that level four and it goes all the way into um it's it's just an illustration at that point my particular image for today is kind of in between but you could you could kind of go up and say no this is this is almost illustration at that point does it look any different? Could you tell if it was done by AI or somebody did it manually? Um, and then beyond that, we have where stuff generated by AI and it was never a photo to begin with. And so there's there's been argument in the Photoshop world long before AI in the PPA International competitions, which I was involved in a lot. And it's like, if, if there's no part of a photo visible, should it be allowed in competition? This was a strong, you know, debate for a lot of years in the Photoshop era. And... Ultimately, it kind of came down to look if it's if there's any photographic element to it at all, it counts. And if it started from a photograph, and then at some point, you know, people would start doing more into the illustrator uh, categories, and that's kind of where AI falls is is the illustrator categories, and it shouldn't be called a photograph if it's generated from nothing from AI, right? If it's a photograph and you just use whatever tools of the day, right? I take the photograph in Photoshop. I've used AI masking, but that's just a select, and then I'm deciding what I want to do with it. I might go to in in Lightroom, right? I might go to Photoshop and I'm using actions. It's there's not even really any AI involved in that. It's just mixing colors and light and, and making that easier for me, and then I can adjust those layers. That's the beauty of Photoshop. I can apply an action, let's say from Alchemist or for whatever you guys use, and it's if it's built well, it's leaving all your layers in place. Most plugins don't do this. This is why I rarely edit with plugins. And I use presets and actions and things like that as well. And I know I have a vested interest. I've been making tools like this and teaching workshops on stuff like this for fifteen years now, and and selling those on my site. So I'm, I'm you know, I, I get that I'm in that world of presets and actions and stuff like that, and I preach those. But it's because they work and they make your images better. They make your editing more efficient. So even if you're making your own, I'm a huge proponent of that. But I'm not relying on manual automation. It doesn't mean we shouldn't know our software because at the end, I'm going to say, okay, now I'm going to do what the action can't. I'm going to start doing some manual painting and details. What, what does that mean? Will that be replaced by AI where I can just type a prompt and it'll do that? Maybe, but ultimately, I have to be in control of what I'm making. I'm not building something from nothing. I'm starting from a photograph. And to me, I think that that's kind of where the line is on when it changes from something that's an edit of my photo that's my vision that's my visualization to something that's fake but I also I don't try and hide that if I'm doing an illustrative look like I did on this and somebody looks at they might say oh it looks like a painting yeah it's it's a painting it's a photo it's a painting it's just my vision of this image it's an illustration but it's it, it it's a photo session it was a real place it was a real person the colors were there I just edit it to my taste and, and I can do that to varying degrees. And you can too. All I'm getting at here is some tips in terms of keeping yourself in perspective. So ultimately in closing this topic, the perspective I'm trying to give you is turn your layers up and down, turn your settings up and down. Don't be afraid to reset the image now and then, and then undo it just to see like, where did I start? Where am I now? And the more you do, the more refined your edit will get. But sometimes at the end, you might need to group all those layers together and just turn them down a bit. Because you might have built up so much. It's, you, you can be editing, and 10 minutes later, and this happens to me in Photoshop all the time, you'll, you won't you will realize how much you've edited in 10, 15, 20, 30 minutes. And you'll go back and be like, wow, it's like, a, it's like a different world. It's the same image, but it's not the same image. And I'm not trying to be a proponent for good or bad. I think we should be honest in our images. If I'm doing like a landscape, like some of my stuff that you guys see me showing on the site and in my workshops and videos most of those are very natural you know I might clone out a piece of trash that I that I missed and didn't actually pick up before I took the photograph um, I will do burning and dodging for tone control I will I will you know maybe do a little bit of pixel painting in to bring back some clipped areas in the sky that that weren't quite caught in the sensor um but I'm rarely unless I'm actually trying to make a painting of it. I'm rarely going to be moving objects around, adding in waterfalls, things like that. Is that bad? Not necessarily, but I like to be genuine. And so at that point, I feel like the scene isn't quite so real. If I'm doing a portrait, on the other hand, I want my model to be beautiful. I want my subject to be beautiful. I want them to be real, but I want them to have the vision that I had for them and what they wanted in that photo. I'll be a lot more liberal with maybe moving things around in the background at that point, because the story isn't about the tree in the background, right? The story is about my model. So I'm not going to probably replace their nose with one from another model. You could do that if you're doing commercial illustrative work. But if I want it to be that person, I want, even if it's more illustrative, to be true to that person. But the supporting cast, the surrounding objects, like the trees in the background, I have no problem cloning out that tree if it's a distraction. Because the story is about my model, not about the landscape or the urban scene or the warehouse they're standing in. You see what I'm saying? I hope this is making sense So I know I'm combining today kind of the ethics of how far we edit, at what point it's an illustration, at what point it's AI. I'm mixing that with the concepts of practical tips for that because I think they go together. And if you're editing and you kind of reference back to your original and then you go, here's my edit, here's my original, here's my edit. It really helps put in perspective to prevent you from over-editing. I'm not defining what an over-edit is, but I think when you do it, you'll know. And over-editing, when I say that, I don't mean like, oh, it doesn't look real anymore. It looks like an illustration. That's totally fine if that's what you were going through. Over-editing is where you've just done more and more and more. A lot of times it occurs, almost always it occurs, because your shadow and your light weren't correct in the first place, and you're trying to fix something. Your image wasn't that great in camera, and you're editing, 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 because you're like, oh, no, if I edit enough, if I do a good, it's going to be beautiful. No one's going to know. They're going to know. They're going to know, even if they don't know why. They're going to feel that something's wrong. There's been too much pushing of tones and light. Something doesn't feel real. The the densities don't feel real. The the, the three-dimensionality doesn't feel real. And so there's no limit on how much or little editing you can do. But I think perspective does help us a great deal. Okay, that is my main topic for today. I won't belabor the point, but go to the show notes at profotoshow.com for today's episode and I'll show you an example of of the image that I was talking about in relation to this concept, but it applies to whatever you're shooting as well, and you can decide how far you want to go. Also go to the show notes. In the show notes, I will put a link to the video I'm going to be uploading that's just in general tips for how not to over-edit and showing you kind of more visually how I use things like layers and stuff like that in Lightroom and how we can manage and remind ourselves of that concept of not over-editing. Okay, let's wrap up with a pick- of the week. And my pick of the week is going to be a little different. You can't just go buy this on Amazon. So maybe it's cheating, but I thought it was worth mentioning because I've been doing uh, more 35 millimeter film photography. I love large format, but it's very expensive right now. I've been playing with, with Polaroid and just stuff like that. And my pick for today is the Polaroid SX-70, the original SLR glass lens SX-70 camera. Now, these are getting harder and harder to find, but you can go out and pick one up for a couple hundred dollars. So I know it's not the cheapest pick, but it's still a lot less than, than most lenses that I might choose for the pick of the week. The SX70 is this fold up camera. So when it's full, it's flat and it's you know about 10 inches long. I have the sonar version. It was like the first, I believe it was the first actual autofocus camera ever made was a Polaroid. And it has this sonar focusing mechanism and it works pretty good although a lot of times i still manual focus so i wouldn't say you need it it's not like you're going to run and gun with a with a polaroid it's too expensive a pack of polaroid film of 8 shots is about 20 us dollars right now so you're spending a couple dollars for every frame what i'm going to pick along with it is the sx70 black and white now if you can't get an sx70 you can go with some of the polaroid the sx70 is the spe- is the type it's the camera the sx70 and then you have to buy sx70 film which just can't still be purchased now again the other one that's more common is and they're both pretty common. You can get them easily on Amazon, the films. The other one is the Polaroid 600. The SX70 is a very slow film. I believe it's 160 ISO. So you're going to find it's not the easiest Polaroid to shoot with, but it is kind of, it's super rewarding. It's a real metal camera. It has a glass lens. You have the focus controls. It's just a gorgeous camera to shoot with. Polaroid 600 is ISO 600, I believe, or is it 800? It should be 600. It's Polaroid 600. The actual size of the Polaroid packs are the same. They're interchangeable in terms of fitting in the cameras. The difference is the formula and the sensitivity. So a Polaroid 600 camera, there's a lot more of them out there. You can get them cheap. They're usually plastic lens cameras, but you can still have a lot of fun with them. They're going to be a little easier to shoot with because it's a higher ISO. I've had a lot of failed shots on the SX-70 because it's so slow. It's not a very good indoor camera. Um, even, even if you, you know, you can go out and you're doing a portrait session and you have a chance to take a couple Polaroids with it. They're beautiful, but get your light good, take your time, position your model, maybe even use a tripod because just like the action of pressing the button sometimes in the movement, if you put it on a tripod with a cable release, uh, it's, it's going to be even more stable because the stability, this, you're essentially shooting a large format. This is, this is about a three by three image, right? So, and this is an SLR, you're actually, it's not a digital print like some of these new cameras where it's taking a digital photo and then you select print on an Instax paper or something like that, like Fuji does on, on some of theirs. They also have optical ones as well. This is a real Polaroid and you're, you're making a three by three image. So movement is, is amplified more. Whereas smaller sensor cameras, you can get away with more. Any movement, it's, it's not quite like shooting four by five, but it's a pretty large format photograph. The results also kind of have that large format depth feel. So you could say, oh no, I could just shoot it on my phone. I could just shoot it on my SLR. Yes, you totally could. And for most images, you will. But there's definitely a magic. You get almost that large format magic. Uh, It's more, maybe i say it's more like medium format, like a Hasselblad square, but it's actually, a Polaroid image is actually larger than a medium format negative. So it's kind of somewhere in between. And there's this kind of beautiful magic to it. The color film on SX-70 Definitely has that Polaroid look to it where the colors aren't quite perfect and true to life. And some people love it. Some people don't. My favorite is the black and white SX-70 film because it's black and white. And it really kind of almost has like almost that wet plate. Like you guys, if you follow my work, you know, I make a, a pack of actions called emulsion for Photoshop to simulate accurately simulate. Platinum prints, wet plate looks, vintage looks, things like that. And and they do give really beautiful results. And I've studied those a lot. And when I see these black and white Polaroids, I'm like, man, it kind of reminds me almost of, of a wet plate, a small one, of course, but it really has an aesthetic. And so I'll take it, a photo with it, and then I'll take a photo or a scan of the Polaroid photo so that I can share it. I'll throw a few of those photos and a photo of the camera in the show notes. I made a post actually on my Facebook page, Sime Effects, recently about this. Uh, and I'm sharing it. But I'll, I'll put a photo of this in the show notes. And just, just to make sure, um, SX70, make a note of that. SX70 photo and photo from the session. Make sure I put all this stuff in the show notes that I told you I would do. Okay? In the new video. Put that there too. Sorry. Making notes. As we go along here, that's my pick. If you can get an SX-70, you can go on eBay or something like that and buy one of these and the film is available. It's not like you have to buy the film used and you're only going to get one pack. You can keep doing it. It's not cheap, but you're going to have a lot of fun with it. If that's overkill and you don't want to go that far to the SX-70, look at maybe a Polaroid 600 uh, because I think it's really cool that Polaroid has kind of brought back the project. Even after going bankrupt, Polaroid was, was bought out and they're making these films again there's some great videos about this on youtube and how they brought it back and they're actually still working on the process because it was very difficult to get everything up and going again some of the original formulas were lost but this polaroid sx-70 black and white really does have a beautiful look to it and my pick for the week is polaroid sx-70 black and white and i hope there's some other users of polaroid out there and if not Look, shooting film helps you as a photographer. It's an investment, I think, in your photography. It's fun, but it also helps you to analyze the photo better and do it better in camera. And that in turn helps your digital. I've said that for a lot of years and I still say it. You don't have to take it to extremes. You don't have to switch to all digital, but these are beautiful cameras. They look great. They're great conversation pieces and they take really cool photos. That's my pick of the week. This has been the Pro Photo Show podcast for July. 14th, 2023. Hope you guys enjoyed. Hope you'll spread the word. Hope you'll share it with friends and your, your groups and your, your photo clubs and things like that. Profotoshow at gmail.com. What you think? Go to the show notes, profotoshow.com. Leave a comment or go to the Facebook group. I'll put a link there as well for that. And let us know what you want to see on future episodes of Photo Show. And we will see you all next time. Stay safe and keep on shooting. Peace.